in terms of the scientific revolution. But that revolution cannot become a reality unless we are prepared to make far-reaching changes in economic and social attitudes which permeate our whole system of society. That's the announcement for Mercury Control. This is Walter Cronkite back at the CBS News Control Center at Cape Canaveral. I want to put it to bed once and for all. That is a complete myth. So I collected the emails and set up a list called the Drudge Report. One reader turned into five, then turned into a hundred, and faster than you could say, I never had sex with that woman, it was a thousand. It's always been a, a ruffled trade, which has tended to attract uh, non-conformists and rebels. This is the BBC Home Service. Here is the news, and this is Bruce Belfridge reading it. The UK's attempt to brand itself Global Britain has hit a snag in the form of a global pandemic. As we chart our course now as an independent trading nation. I will make a statement about the ambitions of a global Britain. There's a whole world out there. If only we would raise our eyes to those more distant horizons, 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 horizons. During the 2000s, there was a lot of stuff about narrative and the war on terror but there wasn't much about narrative and, and anything else. So we kind of tried to push the, the kind of areas where you could research how narratives played a role in politics. And it's just opened doors. Like there's so many people doing PhDs using this approach now um, and people using it in government. Welcome to the Tech, Power and Media podcast. And meet Ben O'Loughlin, a professor of international relations at the Royal Holloway University of London. He's a pioneer when it comes to academic research into strategic narratives, the stories nation states, organizations, and others tell about themselves to ultimately influence the world we live in. He's advised NATO, the EU, and various branches of the British government and some of its agencies. Well, I mean, it's, it's a bit of a cliche that people like this idea of storytelling as well. So they don't need to have read read our work they, they can kind of pick it up intuitively where did the concept of a strategic narrative come from and how did he codify it myself and colleagues we we attended lots of seminars in london during the first years of the war on terror so in the mid 2000s and at king's college london there was a professor lawrence friedman in war studies who was using the concept of strategic narrative to explain you know how do we tell the public why we're going to Afghanistan or why we're going to Iraq. And so there was this, this real focus on narratives around security then. By about 2008, 2009, we were beginning to think this could be used much more broadly. And so um, myself and two friends, we were living in South London, we would meet in a pub, we'd take a laptop and we just tried to work this out a couple of hours a week. And so that led to a, a publication in 2010. And then we held a, a conference on it in New York, where we got some kind of really leading scholars to look at narratives in, the, in their field. So whether they're looking at global finance or development or whatever it is they're interested in. And that let us understand that it could be an approach that lots of people could use. It, it made sense to them. And so from, from then on, it's expanded as a topic for scholars to research but it's also been used in in government and other kinds of organizations i was very interested to find out how the research is conducted ultimately it's an investigation into stories how do you measure that the narrative research is more qualitative it it means kind of 
seeing how people respond to a story, to, you know, who is the cast of characters, what is the setting, things like that. So it generally takes um, months, if not longer, to, to really get a sense of where people connect the past to where we are now in the present, to where we could go with a, a particular issue in the future. It's measurable, but it, it's quite difficult and it's, it involves collaborative teams quite often in different countries doing it. One of the prevailing narratives in international relations at the moment is Global Britain. It's a story all about post-Brexit Britain. How does it work and what's its effect? I asked Ben to explain more. With the, with the Global Britain narrative, I mean, it's quite interesting at the moment with climate change, where we're going to be hosting COP26 in November, where the whole world and their leaders will be arriving in Glasgow. There's a huge security budget. And it's a chance for Boris Johnson to articulate why Britain is a global Britain, why it's helping other countries, how it's got a vision for how we can address climate change by 2030 or 2050. And some other countries want to go along with it, but some of the other countries, they want to be the, they want to be the leaders. You know, if you're in China or France or Germany or Biden now in America, they see themselves as, as the global countries. And Britain might not necessarily have the, the budget or the technology that other countries have. So we're, we're seeing Boris Johnson going through attempts to find out how it can, his government can articulate a narrative about how Britain can lead the world in a certain direction, but with a certain awareness that we can't be the ones really leading it because we're not big enough. So we, we can just set the tone. So over the next kind of, um, well, 12 months, really, you, you're going to be seeing Boris Johnson and his and Alex Sharma constantly trying to tell a story about how we can help vulnerable countries that are suffering from flooding and typhoons and all this damage from climate change. But it's whether that's really going to work in the long run, it's kind of something that's quite open. The study of strategic narratives seems to be quite new. I wondered if Ben could label some of the more historical examples. I mean, looking at um, strategic narratives historically, you've had the EU has a narrative that it was able to overcome world wars. Countries that have been fighting each other for centuries were able to kind of put those things to one side, firstly through economic cooperation, and then that led to kind of political ties, political cooperation. And we have another war between the countries that were, you know, Britain, France, and Germany in that time. And so EU ministers will argue that they're able to provide a, a template for other parts of the world to, to follow. So you did get integration in Latin America or in East Asia. We had NAFTA in, in North America, but it's not the same really. But the EU sees itself as a kind of heroic actor that is offering a path to the future that other countries and other regions could follow. We get these kind of optimistic narratives as well as sort of more uh, security-focused narratives like during the war on terror. Al-Qaeda wasn't really a coherent entity. It was lots of different groups in lots of different places. They might have been connected through some funding through the Bin Ladens, but the Bush administration and, and allies of the US at the time were able to say, well, this is all part of one connected global war on terror. And so people who were gonna commit terrorist attacks in their country for whatever reason, could suddenly say, oh yeah, we're with Al-Qaeda, we're with this, you know, this cool brand that it was at the time for some people. And so 
that was a kind of, you can understand why Bush and Tony Blair and others were telling that story, but it had really risky side effects, if you like, because it, it did encourage people to, to get into that war if they didn't like the West, or if they thought that their countries were under threat for some reason. So we, we, we get these narratives, not just from states, but from you know, terrorist organizations, from companies, from NGOs, all actors in, in politics are, are doing this narrative work. What should nation states and others consider when they're building a strategic narrative? What qualities does it need to have? What we found is that strategic narratives are more effective when they're quite focused. So, for example, the Iran nuclear deal that happened in 2015, the idea that, so this was a deal between the US, Britain, France, Germany, China and Russia on the one hand and Iran on the other. And we all have completely different attitudes towards Iran. And, you know, the US has been quite hostile and we've, we've done some um, unscrupulous things in Iran over the years. They were able to say, all right, Iran might be causing potentially causing problems in the, in the region, but we're just focused on nuclear. So, all right, Iran might be funding Hezbollah, it might be doing some other things, and we'll take care of those other things separately, but let's have a deal on nuclear. And that was surprising that we were able to get China and Russia to agree to something with America at that time. But because it was so discreet, it happened. Now, it wasn't simple in that the Obama administration had to say, hands up, we know that we overthrew your government in 1953 and you're still angry with us, but you need to say, you know, you did things in 1979 when you had your revolution that became quite anti-American and caused problems for us. So both sides were able to kind of say, all right, this, this is the past that taken us to this present. And so if we both acknowledge that we've made mistakes in the past, then we can trust each other now and create something. And that held together, obviously, until the Trump administration, but it's going to come back in some form now. And that was done by, as I say, by finding a basis to trust each other and then doing something quite neat. Obviously, there, there are still much broader problems with Iran's economy and how it fits within the region with tensions with other countries. But by having that focus, the, the, they shared a narrative by the end. They were coordinating it. Their social media were aligned in quite neat ways. However, this is all at an international level. What do nation states do when they're trying to appeal to the public and members of political parties? They both recognised that the other had a sort of hardline base in their country that you had to give them something, otherwise they just attack you. So if you're the Obama, Obama administration, you know that there's loads of Republican states, loads of Republican voters who really don't like Iran and they want to see you being firm with Iran and tough with Iran. So the Obama administration was, was saying some quite hostile things sometimes. Equally, the Iranian government, America would say to Iran, look, we know that you, you've got these hardline opposition people that if you don't give them some rhetoric that shows that you don't fully trust America, then they will say that you're being the victim here, that you're being fooled by, by the Americans. So both of them were kind of going off message a bit to, to, to kind of contain the opposition at home so that they could then have enough momentum to come together. That recklessness we've learned from interviews since with the people who were running these campaigns 
that um, that was deliberate. And finally, I asked Ben how important digital research was as compared to face-to-face -face interviews. And it's not just analysing social media and mainstream media. We, we've tried, I mean, we didn't do it with the Iran case because it, it would be too expensive and it would involve lots of visas. But um, with other research we've done, we've tried to do actual interviews or ethnography with, with people on the ground, like seeing them regularly, talking to them, you know, every week or so to, to find out how they talk about politics generally and then how they fit that issue into, into how they engage in politics. So you can do the social media stuff, and we do, but we also try to keep some kind of face-to-face -face communication going as well. Because even people who aren't very political, who say they're not political, or who don't do very well in political knowledge scores on a survey, once you start talking to them and prodding them a little bit, then they realise that they do have some positions on issues. They just hadn't thought about it because they thought, oh, it's politics and I don't like politics. But they, they do have positions. And um, so we try to keep that face-to-face -face research going as well as digital. You've been listening to the Tech, Power and Media podcast. Please like, subscribe and share. For more, go to www.news-future.com.